Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today I'm excited, very excited to introduce you to Farhoud Maybody. Farhoud is an award-winning writer, director, and executive producer focused on storytelling projects that inspire mass culture change. And here today to tell us more about that, Farhoud, uh, welcome to Uncorking a Story. Thank you. It's, you know, I feel like I might need like a, like a wine bottle to uncork to go along with this experience that we're having right now. It's also early in the morning. <laughs> I don't know how that would land. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it wouldn't stop some people, but you know, interesting fun fact, the genesis of this show, the idea was I would sit down with people in person over a bottle of wine and we'd have these, you know, very casual type conversations. I did it for episode number one, which was actually done with a Catholic priest who he used to work for MTV, and then he kind of pivoted. I called it Pivot to the Pulpit. We sat down, we drank a bottle of uh, Savion Blanc. And then we re I realized that maybe this isn't the best of ideas <laughs> to introduce alcohol, maybe afterwards, hey, but certainly you know, not during. I will say as an entrepreneur, it's all about iteration and not being attached to stuff. So <laughs> it sounds like you're doing it. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, yeah, I'm very excited about the conversation we're about to have. But I'm curious, where where does your story as a storyteller begin? Ooh, um, wow. I would say my story begins in the waters of the Pacific Ocean late one night. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a lot of people who always knew they wanted to be a storyteller. And like, you know, they've been writing since they were like, 15 and i'm just very envious of these people because i didn't know that i wanted to be a storyteller until i was 27. and the way that this came out of me was actually through a near-death experience and you know my background is in law entrepreneurship and at the age of 27 i was extremely unfulfilled you know i was like another brick on the wall you know working for this organization i was in the global fashion industry and, you know, I had always been very seduced by that, like, Gordon Gecko, more, 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 you know, money, like, you know, Tony Montana, like money, power, respect, all that shit. You know what I'm saying? It was like beamed into my consciousness at, at a young age. And I think being the child of immigrants who always wanted to fit in in America, you like latch on to these like cultural icons, you know, like you latch on to like these personas from film. And for me, I was always programmed to think a certain way. And that was just more, 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 yeah. you know? And 
I used to actually jump off the Venice Pier uh, late, late at night. I mean, like, you know, it, it'll give you a window into my personality back in those days. But, you know, I lived on the beach. The pier was right there. I would look out and the pier would almost like beckon to me like, hey, you know, sneak out on this and jump off the pier. And at that time, I was like partying a lot and it was just, you know, different type of lifestyle. So I would jump off this pier and it was whatever it was, a 20 foot jump. And one night I did it around two in the morning, three in the morning. And right when I hit the water, like I could feel the water change. Well, this was not like the way, you know, the times I would normally do it. And a storm brewed up and I was getting thrown around and swished around and just getting sucked under and then spat up and like just, just maddening, really maddening experience and getting pushed out deep into the blackness of the night. And after like, you know, however many minutes I couldn't swim anymore. I was just like, I was tapped and um, I was kind of just waiting to die. Yeah. And as I was waiting to die, I started having this conversation with myself about how regretful I was about the life I was living, that it was always about money and it was always about my own, you know, superficial desires. And I started to dream this dream of like, okay, well, you know, when I reincarnate, I'd love to have this life. I'd love to be an artist. I'd love to be of service to people. I'd love to find ways to like not make it about me and to actually like contribute to our society. And miraculously I lived and I didn't leave my place for a week. And while I was really in this like cocoon of figuring out who I was, I discovered that I was like, what if I could go into media and like use television and film to really like shift the consciousness and the culture of our society a society that I believe played a hand, not completely because I made my own decisions, but a society that played a hand in the person I was, meaning uh, leading me to believe that these consumerist, you know, superficial dimensions of reality were all there was. And that was, I don't know, December 10th, you know, 12 years ago. And a couple of weeks later, uh, I embarked on the journey to be a storyteller. You know, I've interviewed, I don't know, 140 people now on this show. And a good 10 or 15 of them were former lawyers who decided they had enough with that life, that career. They felt completely unfulfilled. And so they start writing, either creative writing, you know, one of them more of a memoir. But there is this like overlap in, in, that I see between, you know, people who are attracted to the law as a profession or the legal profession and people who want to tell stories for a living. Did you always know? I mean, I know you mentioned it was 10 years ago or so where, where you made this pivot to becoming a storyteller. But it, like it, looking back into your childhood, I mean, could you see that, that there was a storyteller inside you? You know, I had always loved film, you know, like when I was a kid, like Kubrick and Scorsese, like I just loved films, but I never saw myself as a filmmaker. And I think mostly it's because like, you know, my parents specifically my mom, you know, she very successful immigrant to the U S there weren't any models in the old country of like, Oh, he's a filmmaker or he's a writer and this, like, we just didn't have that. So like, you know, in the old country it was like, you're a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, a dentist, and that's essentially it. So, you know, I think there were times where I might've gone to her and I was like, Hey, what if I could be a film director? And she's like, Oh, you mean you want to be an entertainment attorney? You know what I'm saying? Like, so if they were present, I think they got kind of sucked out of me just based off of like the reality of, you know, my family. And, you know, it was very interesting. I went to a private Catholic school in LA 
And all my friends' uh, parents were like directors and producers and actresses. And actually, like, I think through interacting with them and their families, maybe I was able to like, you know, see what was possible. Even though I didn't think it was possible for me, I was still able to like get a window into that world. And, and look, I mean, also I think, you know, attorneys are storytellers at the end of the day, you know, you know, like, and there's a level of manipulation that's in there anyway, you know, and like all film is inherently manipulative. I mean, look, like we're taking images and sounds that don't go together and we're bringing them together to facilitate a reaction, hopefully in the viewer. That's a manipulation, Mm -hmm. right? Whether or not I use it to like hurt you or damage you or liberate you and show you all the possibility that's, you know, out there, that's up to the filmmaker. I choose to go in the second route, which is how can we remind people of the magic and the possibility and the empathy that is central to this human experience? Because I think very much when you look at America right now, these are like dark, divisive times. You know, people are, families are fragmented and, you know, people are divided from their friends and their colleagues and Every day on TV, we're bombarded with just images that are, you know, making us afraid to go out in the world and, you know, inflation, recession, war, like, you know, it's real out there. And so what I believe is, is that life imitates art and the art that we consume sets the tonal energetic realm of possibilities for the life you live. Like, you know, say what you say forget about the politics, but I believe that House of Cards created the pathway in our psyche for a Trump presidency. I'm not saying Trump was like a murdering. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the level of what that show was kind of created this soap opera like mentality in us, the viewer and the voter. So when that thing kind of popped off, we were all like, okay, you know, so I think what we see creates a frame for then how we live. And what I would like to do is to reframe what's possible in this world and reframe how we live. Not that I know how we should live, not that I'm the expert. It's just like, can there be a reminder to be more human? Right. Cause you know, what doesn't work, right? You know, you know, what doesn't work. Um, But what I'm, what I'm curious, before we jump into sort of the, the mission, just bridge me to kind of going from that part of your life where, you know, you jump off the pier, your death experience, and then you're realizing like, hey, I need to, I need to do something different. I'm completely unfulfilled. How do you then like bring that in, into a career, you know, as a storyteller and a filmmaker? Because there's a lot of people out there who want to be filmmakers, but how do you, how did you actually execute that and get to that point? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first off, everyone thought I was insane. People thought I was literally like, who are you? Like, I had no creative background. I was always, you know, pretty much a suit. I just locked myself away in a room for like a year. And I just read every book that I can get my hands on. I have no training as a director. I have no training as a writer. I just consumed, you know, maybe that's like the law student in me of like, I can just consume material and understand. But essentially, I just tried to educate myself, tried to get myself out there. I was making corporate videos like low budget corporate videos to just like flex the muscles of what that's like. And I was writing TV shows. So I would create these television kind of like 
you know, mythologies and was able to get them out into the marketplace and make deals for them. But because I was, uh, they call me a baby writer at that time in Hollywood, nobody would take a risk on me. So they would like option the show, but it wouldn't go anywhere. So after a while, I just got so uh, disheartened by the experience that I was like, forget scripted TV. I'm just going to go into documentary. And I partnered with two, two amazing people on a business called Wafer Entertainment. And we were, you know, one of the first wave of social impact studios in Hollywood. And now I have people I can play with. Now I have like other folks who I can build with and dream with. And really together, we were able to create some incredible projects, you know, things that could start digitally, then go to television, then, you know, proceed on to film and and books. And, you know, we were able to create intellectual property and ultimately sold that venture. So for me, you know, being an entrepreneur and being a creative have always been linked together to a certain extent, because that's just who I am. So what good is it to be a creative if I can't own what I make? A lot of creatives are okay making something and selling it to a platform and then getting like, you know, a small interest in it. I want to own everything I make. So that business side of the equation and that legal background gave me an understanding, which was, how can I protect the things that I'm making? And I mean, even that venture, we, we'll be, we, we ultimately sold it to a family office. That doesn't happen all the time in Hollywood. So, so really trying to find a route where I could be liberated as a storyteller in Hollywood, but also not get caught up in the bullshit of Hollywood. Because Hollywood, it's like, I mean, the normal model is you want to make a show, you go to a, a platform or a network, they give you a pilot a deal if you're lucky, they give you a little bit of money. There's all these barriers to entry and it just gets dragged out over how many years. In that venture, we started going to brands and getting brands to fund projects because yeah. it was a quicker pathway to success. So I cut my teeth in that brand sponsored storytelling space. Yeah. And plus there, I mean, there's such a yuckiness to Hollywood. I mean, I work with a, um, a videographer editor in my marketing life who used to write, you know, he and his twin brother, um, his twin brother passed, but yeah, they used to write for Disney. They used to write for the Mickey Mouse Club of all things years ago. So he's a guy who knew, you know, Justin Timberlake when he was a little kid, uh, Britney Spears and all that. And then he's like, you know, I, I asked him one day, I'm like, Joe, how did you get into go from that to, I mean, like living in Malibu next to Nicolas Cage? Like, how did you go from that to shooting me run market research interviews? Because it's drastically different. <laughs> and He's like, there was just such an ugly side to that business. He's like, my brother and I couldn't take it anymore. And they, they wound up leaving and having you know, their careers went in, in different directions. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, for me, I think we create the realm of possibilities for ourselves. And I think there are amazing humans in Hollywood. I know them. They're good people. They believe in what they do. do. They recognize the power of their platform. They want to make a change. There's quite a few folks out there like this. And like any business, there are people who are just in it to make money. It's on us to make decisions of who we partner and align ourselves with. We create that experience. And look, if you're not able to find those people, well, then find those people outside of Hollywood, get capital and make, create what you want. For me, there's, you know, there's like this like complaining mentality. And you know, I'm an entrepreneur, so it's like, I came into Hollywood 13 years ago with one goal. I want to use media to transform this society towards being more empathetic, building bridges. 
there was nobody that I knew of that was doing that. I was very fortunate to find those folks, build an infrastructure, and now I can create space for other people to come in and do the same thing. So like when it's not there, we just have to push. And I think the key element also is remembering what you stand for. We have to first know what we stand for. Uh, Malcolm X once said, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything, right? We need a definitive North Star. I was very blessed that I knew what my North Star was. It took 27 years, <laughs> you know, it's a while, right? But I think for any of the creators out there or really entrepreneurs in general who want to go into an industry, first know what you stand for. Be completely tactical of what that is and then create the plan and then seek out the people. Because if you don't know what you stand for, you're, you're like too malleable. You're like, you're like amorphous kind of floating around. And I think it's important to have that track for yourself. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm sure you'd say the same thing to brands too, like brands, especially brands, brands of the future, brands that want to win in, in like a new environment. They have to know what they stand for as well. Like what is the cause of their championship? And then not just getting your skin clean. It's got to be something bigger than that. Well, 100%. And, you know, I also consult with brands on social impact culture change and storytelling. I love doing it, you know, because again, like I think there's quite a few creatives who are so diehard creative that they can't operate in like a corporate environment. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm an entrepreneur and you know, I came out of corporate America, I can be in that space and merge the worlds. And one of the things I actually talk about when I speak with brands, you have to know what you stand for 100%, but you have to know where you came from. You have to know your brand legacy. Because if your brand legacy is problematic in some capacity, and now you want to go and have a public-facing social impact conversation, those two might not jive together. So if you don't know where you come from, and if you don't know what you stand for, and if you don't take the steps to understand the problem space, you could get in the way of your own goals. And I actually uh, will say that some of the recommendations I will make to brands is don't even take a public stance on this issue. Fix these things inside of your company. And then when you've earned the right, six months, a year, two years, then go and be public facing. Because what will happen if you don't do that? Kendall Jenner, Pepsi, one yeah. of the great clusterfucks of this era. I think it's super important. I teach uh, university courses uh, to upper division business students called Storytelling for Social Impact. And the first day of every year, I show the Kendall Jenner Pepsi thing as like the gold standard of like a train wreck, you know? If you don't hold yourself accountable as a brand marketer within an organization and do that work, the marketplace through social media will hold you accountable. Yeah. So just a quick story about that Kendall Jenner spot. Pepsi is one of my clients and they hired me to do, you know, market research for them. So years ago I was hired. They wanted me to test the Super Bowl ad for them. Wouldn't give me any details about it. I had it be done very quickly. And they ultimately decided not to test that ad. And they really, I'll just, I won't say what ad it was. <laughs> Let's just say they really should have tested that ad because <laughs> it did, it did kind of bite them in the behind a little bit. And it's, it's such a cringeworthy ad. I showed it to my undergraduate business school students that teach a course in marketing at a local university here. And I'm like, this is an example of what not to do. You know, how good intentions are not always the best. Uh, you can have good intentions, but the execution has to be right. I totally agree. And I think it is a representation of the echo chamber of brands where it's yeah. like, like, because it was an in-house studio that made it. 
meaning you're all drinking the Kool-Aid or the Pepsi to the point where you can't see the writing on the wall. Look, I mean, they could have tested that and still went with it. But I think having diverse voices who are not afraid, and this is why I think external consultants are very important. You need people who are not bogged down by like the, the you know, Game of Thrones politics of a you know, corporate environment. You need people who can be like, are you sure you want to do this? Let me tell you what. I think without that freshness of perspective, and it's hard to do because, I mean, you know that that, that environment can beat you down into just like lack of creativity. You want to conform. You don't want to uh, ruffle feathers, you know, and, and I think it can be dangerous. So, yeah, I, I'm a big proponent of bringing in outside voices in order to really just do a landmine check on these types of ideas. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I know... You know, you create a lot of babies in terms of in films um, with uh, with social impact, um, and I'm sure it's hard to pick a favorite. And I, I won't I won't ask you to pick a favorite, but um, what are some of the the you know the moments while making these films that really stayed with you? You know, stuff that were just as part of the process. They they got rooted into your subconscious and had a personal impact on you. That's a great question. So I think for me, there's a lot of people right now that have jumped on the impact purpose bandwagon, right? Like, so when I was coming up, people thought I was crazy. I would go into rooms and I would talk about social transformation and they, they would just be like, how are you going to make money doing that? Like no one cares. Right. And then the market shifted and the powers that be saw what was possible with emotional connections in the heart and in the mind through this type of storytelling that like you didn't need to manipulate with that like old school Don Draper handbook, the 30, 60 spot, you could create a story that didn't even have the brand's product in it. And it would still have a change in the viewer, right? So for me, I believe that the magic happens if you detach yourself from the outcome of what you want to be achieved. Meaning if you and I are making a film and our goal is we want people to, you know, uh, whatever, consume less plastic, right? If we can detach from that outcome and just focus on ensuring that the entire experience of making that film, that everybody who is there feels safe, feels acknowledged, feels seen, that we reduce our plastic intake on set, meaning like we're not full of shit. You see what I'm saying? Like, like if we can create transformational experiences for the subjects that are a part of the piece, like for me, the best part of what I get to do is when I get to interact with special people who are not actors and are not used to telling their stories and just to create space around them to share. And I'll tell you, to tell you a story. I, um, I was just in Nairobi shooting a film and the film is actually about plastic uh, circular economy. And in the movie, I'm profiling an entrepreneur who uh, figured out how to take plastic bottles from a landfill and create bricks to pave roads and build houses. Pretty awesome, right? Capitalism and environmentalism coming together. I spent three days in the biggest landfill in East Africa. Now, I don't know if you've been to a landfill in America, but now imagine going to a landfill with minimal environmental regulations with 100,000 people living inside of the landfill. Meaning these folks make a living digging through garbage, finding plastic and selling that plastic for like a dollar or two a day. 
There are schools in the, this landfill community. There are churches. Now imagine going in there and shooting a film. You can't just walk around and point a camera in someone's face, right? So I went into this space just to immerse myself in the community. And I met this gentleman. He was working, older. And I started talking with him. We had like an hour-long conversation about geopolitics and this and that. He had been working in the dump site for 20 years. 20 years. They don't use gloves, nothing. Like, I mean, he can't get a job anywhere else. That's why he works here. And I asked him, I was like, I want to put you in this film. And he's like, why? Well, me? Like, why? I go, because you're brilliant. You're brilliant. You're special. And I wasn't just saying this to him because I want, I believed it. Wow, look at this man. The next day I came back and we were going to shoot some sequences together. And we, you know, bring the camera and I went to him and I said, I want you to feel how special you are to me. Forget about the camera. I want you to feel the pride and the dignity of what you, of who you are, of how you live, of the work you're doing. You're an entrepreneur. I call him a wastepreneur. Now, if you ask someone out here to tell you about that man, they'll say, oh yeah, this is probably just some like, you know, downtrodden person. The culture change that took place within my consciousness, within his consciousness, within the consciousness of everybody around us, of that beautiful man seeing himself as a valuable part of society with something to say, brother, that's the most magical thing that I get to do on a daily basis is to bask in the radiance and the magic and to be a mirror to people who, because of some trauma, like I've done content in the sexual assault space, people who forget to be reminded through this experience. I believe art can be transformational. If you create that space, we can shift hearts and we can shift minds on set. So my approach is detach from, I want a million people to do this and just create space for this person and this person who are there with us for me to have a change. And if I can facilitate that for these people, naturally it'll happen over here because it's true right? and it's real. To start in the micro environment and then it's and then it goes out to the macro environment, but you have to be authentic and, and change it on a small level first. Yeah. To, to give it the, the seed and sunlight and water it needs to and to grow. And detach from the outcome. Like everything is so transactional. I want customers to buy this when they uh, watch my stuff. I want you to watch my film and then go and put your email on a website to be on a mailing list. Why is it so transactional? If I want people to be fully actualized and realized, I need them to feel like I don't want something from them. I want to give something to people. And when you watch TV or you watch so-called social impact storytelling, it's transactional. So how can we be human on set in human? How can we be human when we're casting, human when we're shooting, human when we're marketing, human right now, Right. We got to be the change we want to see in the world. And I think for a lot of the late entrants into the social impact, because now it's popular, right? 
a lot of the late entrants think they can just say, I'm a social impact storyteller, and they are one. You're not. You're not. Because the entire philosophy has to be different in how you approach this. You can't shoot an impact film the way that you shoot Game of Thrones or the way that you shoot Chef's Table. They're different. And we can actually traumatize people. We can hurt people if we don't take into account that difference, you know? Yeah. It's a sacred thing, man. It's a sacred gift if you can share stories like this. And I am honored and blessed that I get to play a very small role in doing that because I'm even a work in progress. So I, I love hearing about your work and mission. I need to dig into a little bit more about you as a person. And to do that, I've got a couple of fun questions here. And this is how I learn about people. Starting off with, uh, I know you're a storyteller you know, by trade now. What were some of your favorite TV shows when you were a kid? Oh, wow. Uh, okay. I, Jesus, when I was a kid. Okay. I loved The Simpsons. My mom would never let me watch it. And I would have to watch it at my friend's house. <laughs> she thought it was terrible. <laughs> I love the Wonder Years. I think the Wonder Years stacks up like it it stands the test of time from a storytelling standpoint. Just brilliant, so nostalgic, and also like from a learning standpoint, there was so much there that you could learn from. I don't know if you ever watched Tiny Toon Adventures. I thought that was pretty oh, cool. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember <laughs> Tiny Toon Adventures. And then again, like at the same time, I loved gangster movies. So even when I was like young, I would watch like stuff I wasn't supposed to watch. Like I would watch like Goodfellas and I, I would see films that like my mom did not want me to see. But again, like in my impressionable little psyche, it like, you know, cracked me open to film. Yeah, I, I just watched Goodfellas with my son um, over Easter. He was home. Now he's 20, so certainly old enough to see it, but that was a nice bonding experience. And they got him hooked on mobster movies. He's like, can we watch another one tonight? I'm like, I think we got to let the girls pick out a movie tonight. (laughs) No one, one of his great superpowers is merging music with imagery. Absolutely. And his, his taste in music is so sophisticated that like when I hear Derek and the Dominoes, I think of Goodfellas. Like yep. I cannot remove the imagery from the song because of how powerful his work is. Yeah. I mean, I guess he's okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in terms of musical artists on your playlists, who would be overrepresented there? Who, who do you have a lot of? Who do you like to listen to? Ooh. All right. I would say the greatest living female vocalist is Sade. That's a sweet taboo right there. To, to, like, and some people will get triggered by this. She is an icon. She is a trailblazer. She literally created a genre of music that like kind of didn't exist. She brought that like neo-soul vibe, you know, to life. She's been doing it for decades. And there's just like a sweetness and a soulfulness and a humanity and a femininity and a humility to her. Like she's a very humble artist and you can tell when you listen to her work i mean i also love a lot of like 1950s 60s like i like a lot of the classical stuff jazz blues you know like i love rock and roll i mean i would say jim morrison is a the doors a big um david bowie big influence on me as an artist 
I'd say probably like one of the greatest artists of the 20th century is probably David Bowie of just what, of how he was living art mm-hmm. and how he constantly changed who he was. He never just like stayed in one path. And he pushed us in ways that I think was so ahead of our time. Even the idea of like creating character constructs, kind of like Muddy Waters was the first person to really create a construct of like who he was. David Bowie blasted that into like another dimension of like, he's a star man, you know? So I love, I love Bowie. Yeah, no, he always able to reinvent himself. The Bowie from the 70s is not the Bowie from the 90s, is not the Bowie exactly. you know, just before he died. And that stuff he did with Trent Reznor, I thought was pretty cool. Brother, his last album, like the fact that he was able to record what I believe to be his best work, put it on a shelf, and the day he dies, releases Black Star, like it's the level of intentionality and storytelling and sincerity that who he is. If I could be like 1% of that, I would feel so excited because he's my, Bowie is my North star always of like, whatever I'm doing. It's like, he had this quote, someone asked him and it'll kind of bring this conversation full circle. Someone asked him, they're like, David, how do you constantly shift and achieve such success when you shift you know, styles and things of this nature. He goes, my creativity is an ocean, which will take me back to the pier. My creativity is the ocean. And what I want to create, I wade out into the ocean to the point where my feet are barely touching the ocean floor and my head is barely above water. And that's where I create. Meaning he pushes himself to the limits of who he is, just to the breaking point. And that's how he creates. And for me, that's what I aspire towards of like putting my heart and my soul and my being and my trauma and my everything into something that I make to the point where it's a living, breathing expression, partially of myself, but also like a representation of saying something fresh and something bold and standing for something in this chaotic world that we live in. I mean, he's he's almost talking about being kind of born again and reinventing himself. And in a way, you were, I mean, the person who emerged from that water after jumping off the pier at 2 a.m. was not the same person who came out of that water. I mean, you had a massive, massive life life change. I mean, that's it's almost like you were, I mean, not to get religious, you were born again in that you, moment. We can completely get religious because it was a spiritual experience and I would say a ritual death. And, you know, I've been very blessed to make stories about people who are navigating chronic and terminal illness through a show called My Last Days. And when you get close to death and when you get close to people that are, you know, closer to the exit than the entrance, you see all this wisdom come through and you see this like magic, this detachment from the, you know, material world. And I think for me, my current company is called Ritual. And the reason it's called ritual is because I believe we've lost a sense of ritual in our lives. We need ritual, right? I needed that experience in that water to remind me of what was important and why I was here. I need daily rituals in my life. You, everybody, we need daily rituals in our life to remind us why we're here. And whether you're Christian, Jewish, it doesn't matter, right? Like, what's your ritual? What's the thing you do to remind yourself when you're stuck in traffic or when someone says something to you that you don't like to remind yourself of why you're here. And I believe that storytelling 
should be a ritual and almost ceremonial, right? Because it wasn't meant to be just frivolous entertainment. That wasn't the construct of storytelling. Storytelling was always meant to help us navigate and understand a chaotic world, to learn values. We've lost that. And so for me, what drives my work and what drives that creativity is bringing a sense of the sacred back to our country. Because I really believe with my heart and soul that this fragmentation, this divisiveness, this rural, urban, liberal, conservative fragmentation, if we don't figure this out, the party's over. This union will not last if we can't even talk to each other. And I'm hoping that the divine, and I'm hoping that that sense of unity that comes from having a relationship with your creator, humbling yourself with your creator, I'm hoping that whether you're in Wyoming or Arkansas or LA or New York, that we can share that, that humbling together and listen to each other. Because you don't have to be right. I don't have to be right. But you're a human being with dignity and the light of your creator in your heart. And so am I. And we need to see ourselves like that. Whoever you voted for, whether or not you're vaccinated, I don't care. I should see that in you and you should see it in me. And now let's have a conversation. Well, if people wanted to continue this conversation, where, they, where could they go to learn more about you? Website, social media, yeah. throw it out there. Uh, well, first off, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to look at your cork, cork <laughs> wall behind you <laughs> and to go down this rabbit hole. So if you go to Instagram, so I'm on Instagram at uh, Farhoud Maybodi, F-A-R-H-O-U-D-M-E-Y-B-O-D-I. And that is also my website, farhoodmaybodi.com. And if you want to check out some of my work, uh, you can go watch any episode of My Last Days. And uh, I also have a series that's going to be finished the next couple of weeks called Earthbound. And we'll do some marketing around that. Very cool. Farhoud Maybodi, thank you so much for taking the time to let me uncork your story. (laughs) Thank you for having me, man.